This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon. Really good to have you here today. This hour... You'll head off to the Kimberley's Ord Valley where the picking is almost about to start at the biggest mango orchard in that region. We'll take a look around the orchard because there's a few question marks this year. There's not much fruit this year. Uh, Well, we're really not sure why that is the situation. We'll head to the Kimberley a little later this hour. Also, about 4,500 sheep and lambs sold at Katanning this morning. So compared to last week, it was a slightly larger yarding, but the quality has dropped off. So, as you'd imagine, so did the prices. Tracy Kilner will go through the yarding and the prices for you just before the news at one o'clock. Six past 12, here on the Country Hour. Cattle stations across the gas coin in the state's northwest are experiencing very dry conditions this year, with some pastoralists receiving only half their average rainfall. Now, it's a similar story in many parts of the country. And between now and the news headlines at half past 12, you are going to travel to central Queensland and also popping into the southeast coast of New South Wales just to take a look around. And then you'll hear what's come out of this week's National Drought Forum held in Rockhampton. But let's start right here in WA with a trip to Bijamaya Station on the banks of the Gascoigne River, about 185 kilometres east of Carnarvon. Hamish McTaggart is the owner of the station. Hamish, how's it looking at your place? It is pretty dry. We've had 80 to 100 mils of rain for the year, which is about half of you know, what we normally get. Uh, it's probably the driest year we've had in 12 or 13 years, but it's not as bad as it sounds. We've come off a you know, really great run of really good seasons, and that's where um, the cattle and the country's holding over pretty well, but... There's a bit of a time limit on that. By sort of Christmas time and, and after, um, we'll be looking for it to rain pretty quickly if, if possible. Now, Hamish, how are you handling the situation then at this point? Are you looking at destocking? Are you buying in feed? What sort of strategies are in place? Uh, all of those things. Um, it's it's not a huge... We're just selling a little bit more than normal and we will start feeding some cattle around the water points once we finish mustering, which is in the next sort of few weeks. But it's sort of contained to a pretty small area on the station and it's, you know, trying to be a bit proactive type deal. And all in all, we're just, the best way to describe it is we're hanging in there and it, it won't rain till Christmas time now. But, it, it, you know, if we can get to rain pretty early on in the season, it, it you know, it will we'll be, we'll be fine. But uh, the longer it goes on into the summer and, you know, we have another poor, you know, summer and, you know, poor 2024, then the longer that goes on, it'll uh, it, uh, it'll get pretty untidy, you know, as, as far as the year goes on, yeah. Hamish, as you look across the property, how do you carve it up in terms of areas that are pretty poor at this stage and others that are just doing okay? I would say that about the quarter of the place looks pretty good um it might have you know might have done a bit better than that sort of 100 or 100, might have got 150 mils of rain through maybe a quarter of the station that still looks pretty good really about a half about 50 percent of it is okay 
but you know, um, I'd put in the categories. You know, we're, we're sort of hanging in there, but the cattle look well, and you know, we're pretty comfortable with that. And about a quarter of the place, we're going to have to, you know, uh, wane off pretty hard with the young cattle that we're removing from them at the moment. Um, supplementary feed them, and just keep a very close eye on that part of the world. And you know, but, uh, by January, February, we might have to go in and muster it again, and you know, sort of. Yeah, shake things up, you know, pretty dramatically in there. But we've we've got a little bit of time before we have to do something really serious there. And the, and the cattle are, are light in that area. But but it would only uh, I'd only sort of say that there's probably you know twenty percent or twenty five percent of the stations in that territory. You said earlier that you have sold off um, more cattle than usual than you'd probably like to at this time. Can you give us an idea of numbers? Like how many head are you stocking at the moment, and how many have you sold off? Uh, well, we would normally sell off about 4,000 to 4,500 animals a year. And we, we're currently mustering now um, and we haven't, you know, finished selling. But I'd, I'd, I would say we're just not holding on to as many cattle as what we would. We usually hang on to 1,100 or 1,200 sort of animals that we would paddock here and try and grow out. Well, that, and we would, of that, there'd be about five or 600 keeping heifers or, you know, to, uh, number three heifers that we'd hold back, I, I reckon we'll only end up with about half of that of uh, half of that of keeping heifers and it's early days, but you know, I would I'd, I'd say of that eleven or twelve hundred that we would try and hang on to, we would only we would sell at least fifty percent, if not a little bit more than that. So yeah, we we you know, space is at a premium on the station with you know, and every piece of um you know, every blade of grass is, is pretty important in a time like this. So you've just got to you know, manage that as best you can, and, and we're just selling off as much as we possibly can, and and uh, giving the cattle that are left behind, you know, as much time and uh, as much time and food as we can. Uh, which markets are you selling to? Uh, we sell into the live export industry. That suits. So we're only in eight in trainfall country, so it's pretty marginal. You know, dry country, so we're we're not in a. This happens a fair bit where we are, where it dries off pretty quick, so. To be in the live export game sort of is, you know, it sort of suits this part of the world because you can sell down pretty young into that into that market. So that that's what we're doing and that's what we're geared for and that's why we do what we do. And which markets, which destination? The bulls are going to uh, Israel. Uh, so we're just entire bulls, young bulls going into Israel. And uh, our heifers this year are going into Indonesia. Okay. And have you had any hold-ups with all the... Uh, trade kind of lumpy skin issue that's been going on? No, we've got away with that pretty well. I'd say we're some of the lucky ones. We're some of the lucky ones, but yeah, we've, we've got out of that pretty well. But it has been a bit disruptive and it's not without, it's, it hasn't been without its issues, but so far so good. Um, we've had to muster a little bit earlier than what we normally would have liked and just had to sort of, you know, change a few things, but we've got out of it pretty well and um, we're pretty lucky and the exporters we deal with have been really good, so uh, no complaints. All right. What about the prices, though? Have you got a few complaints in that department? No. Well, yeah. Once again, I'm a bit lucky. We signed all our contracts earlier on in the year, so we're doing pretty well compared to just selling into the market at the minute. But I think next year is going to be nasty by the sounds of things. Yeah. Well, you timed that perfectly then. Um, Just having a look, you know, broadly across the region, is the situation at your place reflective of what's going on more widely? Every person that I speak to, further north, east and sort of everywhere a bit, 
almost tells exactly the same story. Half the station's okay, half of it is a bit rough, and people are just managing that. It, it, it it's it's definitely been a lot worse. So I, you know, and you're sensing from the people in the district that that they're going okay, but. I think a bad year next year will be a um, will will bring us all back to earth. We're just everybody's just hanging in there, and we're going okay, and the cattle are okay, and we're getting away with it. But yeah, it's uh, I think everybody's going to be looking uh, looking uh, at you know at the weather next year and and keeping their eye on the skies and and hoping for it to rain and and we'll squeak through pretty well. Well, uh, obviously the El Nino, the the drier conditions have been officially called by the Bureau of Meteorology. And uh, timely enough, there is this national drought forum that's been on in Rockhampton, Queensland this week and all the, you know, country's agricultural leaders there working on plans to help regions cope with a return to dry conditions. Uh, As you said, you know, you've been in this situation before. What actually helps? Um, I don't know. I'd probably... You've sort of caught me on the spot. I didn't realise I was going to be talking to you this morning, but I don't know. I'd, I'd think a bit differently about it, and probably to you know, I just think uh, you know it's up to us as farmers to manage droughts as, as best we can, and just be just be assisted in that in the in small ways. I mean, being able to uh, being able to um, you know shift animals around, get them out of drought prone areas, you know, uh, you know, sort of make sure that we can get um, cattle out on trucks as, as best we possibly can. Sometimes that's a bit of a hindrance, you know. We can't get road train permits and shift cattle around in six set lots at times. This is pretty tough going. That sort of doesn't help. And you know, going across borders and things like that. I, I, uh, you know, with with cattle, I, I think the the less you know, the least that could be held up, the better. But I'd sort of tend to think that. We need to, um, as farmers, probably you know, look at ourselves a bit. To be honest, at the way that we handle uh, dry times and 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 you know our practices and things like that, I, I think we could be doing a, a hell of a lot better ourselves. To be perfectly honest, as opposed to you know sort of looking to the government for support at times um, is sort of where I stand on it. Yeah, I don't know if that's any help to you or not. <laughs> no, that's good to hear. No, it's good to get your perspective because we're going to head off to Queensland now and just get a sense of, you know, what's come out of that forum. Really good to talk to you, Hamish, and all the best. I hope you do get some of that rain you're, you're looking for. No, thanks very much. Hamish McTaggart from Bijamaya Station in the Gascoigne. Quarter past 12 here on the Country Hour. Some hot conditions well, pretty much from the north to the south of the state this afternoon. And, of course, we'll head off to the Bureau of Meteorology to get all the specific details, see if any of those September temperature records have been broken today. Um, 40 degrees is, um, well, pretty common in the north, parts of the north of the state anyway, and even further south. This text just through saying it's already 38 degrees in Geraldton and I think even right on the south coast, Albany. Wasn't it heading for 28 degrees, I think? Anyway, all the details for you with that cross to the Bureau after the headlines at half past 12. 16 past 12 here on the Country Hour. And popping over to the Bega Valley near the southeast coast of New South Wales now, where farmers are calling for freight and fodder assistance to manage the ongoing dry conditions. The state government is saying 22% of this region is drought-affected although not yet classified as in drought. As Josh Becker reports, some farmers are still calling for immediate support. 
Farmers in the Bega Valley are comparing the current dry conditions to the 2019 drought. Vivan Mawini runs sheep and cattle on his property between Bemboka and Candelo in the Bega Valley. Seriously ordinary, I think, is the best description. Um, it's as dry as I've seen in a long while, and certainly it looks like a grand repeat of uh, 2019. It's seriously dried out. At the moment, the, according to the DPI combi- combined drought indicator, it's saying the, the Bega Valley's uh, drought affected, but not yet in drought, and the same for the Eurobadala. Um, what do you make of that? Yeah, I can't speak for the Eurobadala, but we're certainly in drought out here. We've had a, a couple of light showers over the last two or three months. That's all we've had, and um, there's no uh, soil moisture at all, and it really is dry as uh, dry as it gets we've got there's nothing growing um it's, it's all just remnants of dry feed and that's disappearing as well i don't know what indicator they use but they probably need to revise it what have you been doing on your farm already uh when it comes to drought preparation and a response to the dry conditions we've we've seen yeah well i've been uh, de-stocking uh, at a rapid rate so we've probably um uh, sold off more than two-thirds of our sheep and um well we've been selling breeding stock and we're now selling cows and calves breeding cattle and uh, so the, the cattle numbers have been reduced substantially but uh i've got to say that even the number the few i've got around here um there's no new feed coming through so um i'm having to uh, buy both grain and hay, we're, we're going to be on the spot that, um, you know, by the time they bring the subsidies in, uh, um, we'll be we'll be getting bugger all feed anyway because we won't have any uh, won't have any stock left much to feed. But uh, yeah, they've been they've been very tardy, and I don't know why that is. You think the state government should and the Commonwealth should look at uh, drought assistance for farmers? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean. Uh, uh, there's, there's no doubt that we're in, we're in real strife, and um, times like this, we, we need a bit of a hand. So yeah, the sooner the better. Phil Dummett runs cattle at Verona, north of Bega, and he agrees the area is in drought, and he's also calling on the state government to introduce freight and fodder subsidies. Water's not a problem as yet, but uh, feed-wise, yeah, we, we're feeding every second day. Cattle are holding, but uh, we'll see what happens. It's pretty much a drought in some of the Shire or some of the Bega Valley as they're classing it. If you go for a drive north, there's a little bit of around Tilbra and that uh, is a little bit green, but the rest of the area is, unless you're irrigating, yeah, I'd, you know, I'd say we're 100% in drought at the moment. Do you think there's uh, a need for any of the thing assistance we saw in the last drought when it came to freight subsidies and, and fodder subsidies for farmers? Yeah, look, the biggest cost at the moment with, with the cost of diesel uh, for the trucks, you know, I've got a quote at $6.80 a, kilo, uh, a kilometre to get hay here. Now, that's a big, you know, uh, big cost, uh, plus on top of your hay, which might be reasonable, but the, it's the... the it's a freight cost which is killing people, and if they if they can bring back the subsidy, which I think they they should, especially for us on the, the coast here in the Bega Valley, most of our fodder's got to come from from Wagga and that area or up Caraway, uh, so it's all got to be freighted in, which is yeah big cost. Phil Dummett, who runs cattle at Verona, just north of Bega. 
in New South Wales, where things are obviously very dry at the moment. 20 past 12. Well, very timely, a national drought forum was held in Rockhampton, Queensland yesterday, bringing together policy leaders from across the country. Farmers in large parts of Australia's east are already in drought as they gear up for a dry spring and summer caused by an El Nino weather pattern. National Farmers Federation CEO Tony Ma was realistic about what could be achieved at a drought forum. Well, one thing for sure is we're not going to solve drought policy here today, but it's an important check-in because I am hearing a lot of nervousness, a lot of anxiousness, a lot of, um, you know, trepidation about what the future looks like, certainly in the next few months as we come into summer, but also for the next, you know, 24 months or so. We know that agriculture is very cyclical. Uh, We know that we've had um, a series of favourable years and it's... uh, expected in a way that challenging tougher times are coming so it's a really a discussion about how we can better manage those those tougher times because we know um, they're a part of the the agricultural landscape mm. uh, people might hear about you know a bunch of people getting in a room today in rockhampton having a chat and wondering well what can actually come from that yep. what do you what do you benefit from actually getting these people in a room together well again a couple of things i mean you've got the minister for agriculture here murray watt you've got the treasurer jim chalmers so you've got two leading stakeholders in the government cabinet ministers coming to rockhampton to join with people whether it's the national farmers federation other state farming groups commodity groups um you know farm businesses, government, uh, other governments, banks, uh, other institutions. So, yes, we might be sitting in a room in Rockhampton, but you've got the key players there that have got their hands on levers to actually, you know, help and understand what, what's happening. And that, I think, augurs well for the community to manage drought. And that's what it requires. It's not just farm businesses. It's not just a local community. It's state governments, Commonwealth governments, uh, banks, other financial institutions. So um, they all need to play a part and it's really valuable to have everyone in the one room listening and understanding what the current situation is. National Farmers Federation CEO Tony Ma speaking to Paul Cullivar in Rockhampton at the first of a series of national drought forums being held in the eastern states. 23 past 12. Well, the National Drought Summit was held in central Queensland because of the very dry conditions in the region. Cattle producers Melanie Shannon and Melanie Leather are from the local Barfield Road producer group and attended yesterday's forum. We're sort of finding there's been a real change in season, obviously. We went through that really um, quite wet period of time. Uh, We had plenty of feed and now we're sort of finding that, yeah, the feed is diminishing. We've also um, recently had a a fire up on our property, which was a shame, but we we lost about a third of our feed. So, uh, yeah, Yeah. that was um, quite a a shame. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, What about for you? Yeah, look, the same. It's, um, It's pretty dry all around central Queensland. Uh, a lot of people are offloading cattle at the moment, so that supply and demand, um, supply certainly outweighing the demand. So we've seen a drop in prices, um, increase in interest rates and the dry weather, so it's like the triple whammy. But you know what? Producers are fairly prepared in the last few years. Uh, we've had reasonably good seasons, good prices and low interest rates. So people have done a lot of things. We've, um, we've built up our infrastructure. We've got ourselves ready for um, what we knew is always coming, Mm. Um, it's what we expect in our industry, unfortunately. But 
um, I think it gives us a lot of confidence and power when we can be well prepared and managed for these um, times. Yeah. How many head of cattle are you both running at the moment? Uh, we're running about a thousand. Yeah. Yeah. We're running five thousand head across three properties. Yeah. And have you reduced in recent times, or are you thinking about reducing? What's the sort yeah. of state of play? Certainly. So, um, looking at um, getting numbers down now, um, we've got cattle going um, nearly every day this week. We've sold some feeders earlier on. So, I think that's important too, is being flexible with your markets. So, traditionally, we like to finish all of our cattle um, to to abattoir conditions. But you know, look, if the feeder market's there. Um, cattle are ready to go, that, that's an option too. So yeah, it's that being flexible with your markets as well. Yeah. So today we're at the National Drought Forum. Uh, obviously we're, we're going to hear from and we have heard from a bunch of people involved in national organisations and responsible for whole regions of Australia. Uh, you're there on the ground. Great that you are a member of, of, of this event to be able to actually have a say. What are the sort of conversations that you're going to be a part of today? Uh, yeah, look, I'm just really looking forward to hearing um, about what what ideas that um, we can we can actually implement, perhaps with our producer group, in terms of practical solutions on the ground, uh, and also looking at ways that we can be better prepared for drought. So, we uh, I, I feel that personally in our business we're fairly prepared, uh, but I'd like to hear of yeah some other ways that we can prepare that those real on ground ideas. Yeah, yep. look, I'm, I'm excited the ministers are here today. I think it's important that we have good policy around drought preparedness um, and resilience in our communities and businesses. Um, I'm excited about the technology and innovation that's available to us now. Um, when I look at things like SIBO mapping, looking at um, remote ground cover um, sensing, um, the work that MLA is doing around the feed-based monitoring, uh, things that are happening with our herd inventory with mm. um, companies like Black Box and AgriWeb, uh, it's, we've got tools there that we can use to help us make decisions early, and that's really exciting for us. The Federal Agriculture Minister and the State Agriculture Ministers are both an, uh, announcing these local drought plans. Fitzroy and Capricornia is going to have one developed in tandem with our councils. Now, we don't necessarily have every dot-by-dot dot detail of that. I don't know how familiar you are with it. But in terms of the concept, at least, um, I'm curious what you think about that idea of really developing drought plans based on, well, we are beef cattle, we obviously have a bunch of crops as well, we have cotton. Uh, how do we develop a plan that actually encompasses what we do in CQ, not let's just throw a blanket across all of Australia? I think that's really important because um, that's what we've got to remember here in Australia. We've got a lot of regional differences. And if we can do this at a local level, I think there's real power in that. Um, we talk about in our Barfield Road Group about communities of purpose. And I guess this is just another take on that communities of purpose. It's just a bigger way of doing it. But um, I hope um, that, you know, as industry people, we all get to be participants of that um, with the local government. Um, and, you know, I think... Yeah, there's a chance there for that to work well as long as we um, remember to all come together and all have a voice in that space. Cattle producers Melanie Shannon and Melanie Leather speaking to Paul Culliver about how things are looking at their places in central Queensland and both of them getting along to that National Drought Summit that was held in central Queensland in Rockhampton yesterday. Uh, this is the Country Hour and it's 28 past 12. If you like mangoes, well, you won't be happy really to hear prices this spring and summer are probably going up. And that's partly because one of WA's biggest growers won't have much fruit. It's very random. 
some trees might have two or three trays per tree and then you might walk down a row and not find another tree with fruit on it for eight or nine trees and it's just very random and it's hard to hard to estimate a crop value but it is going to be a very poor crop You'll hear more from Steve Angel from Swag Mangoes a little later this hour. 29 past 12 and Jonathan Hopper is here with an update from the newsroom. Good afternoon, Belinda. A 42-year-old Perth man has pleaded guilty to murdering a woman in a city hotel but has indicated he may dispute the allegation he intended to kill her. Julian Alexander Powell was arrested by police who were called to the Adelaide Terrace Hotel in November last year amid reports of a disturbance. The body of Vitorina Bruce was found in a room on one of the upper floors and police said she appeared to have suffered what they called a traumatic event. Federal opposition leader Peter Dutton says former Qantas chief executive Alan Joyce should be fronting a Senate inquiry investigating the airline industry. Mr Joyce will be summoned to appear when he re- uh, returns from overseas with his successor Vanessa Hudson set to appear before the committee in Canberra today. The opposition has accused Qantas of lobbying the government to block a bid from Qatar Airways to increase its flights into Australia. And England batter Danny Wyatt has withdrawn from the Perth Scorchers squad for the upcoming Women's Big Bash League, citing fatigue. The WBBL starts on October the 19th and the Scorchers' first match is against Hobart on the 20th. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you so much for the update, Jonathan. Half past 12. You're with Belinda Varaschetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Still to come between now and the news at one o'clock, we'll take a look at why there's such a, a variation in mutton prices between Katanning and the Mushay sale yards here in Western Australia. It's about, you know, 30, 40 cents uh, difference between the two, with Mushay getting the better price. So what is going on there? We'll take a look at that. And also head to Katanning, of course, the sheep market on today, and Tracy Kilner We'll go through the yarding and the prices for you just before the news at one o'clock. Right now, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Angeline Prasad with you this afternoon. And that uh, trough down the west coast of Western Australia, really packing a punch this afternoon. It suddenly is, Belinda, a fair amount of heat building across the southwest land division today. We're looking at temperatures about 12 to 16 degrees above average. We've seen a couple of records already smashed for the day. So uh, Geraldton Airport is uh, has hit 38.5 degrees. Uh, and it's still rising. The previous September record was 34.9, so well and truly smashed there. Um, other places, Morawa is uh, is climbing up. It's sitting in the mid-30s. Um, and, yes, so a lot of heat building up in those uh, very hot uh, northeastly flow uh, that's set up due to that deep uh, west coast trough and a fairly strong uh, high-pressure system uh, through the bite. And further around the southwest land division then, and it's even, you know, hot conditions along the south coast, isn't it? Talk us through it. Yes. So temperatures uh, along uh, the south coast, we're looking at generally temperatures again uh, about uh, uh, 
10 to 12 degrees above average for this time of the year, including the inland parts of the Southwest Land Division. So across uh, across the the Southwest, we're looking at uh, temperatures uh, in the high 20s, um, but yeah, further north, especially through the Central Wheat Belt, Central West, we are looking at temperatures in the mid to high 30s today. Um, Southwest Coast, yes, the temperatures are in the high 20s, so you know it is um, it is not as hot as further north, but you know it's unusually warm for this time of the year. Uh, the good news is that the heat along that southwest coast will, it's only for today. Tomorrow, um, the the west coast draft does shift slightly inland. So that heat uh, will shift uh, from the southwest coast, including the Alban area, more into the Esperance region. So we'll, we may see some records uh, through there. And uh, obviously some, some temperature records potentially through the central wheat belt uh, and the eastern parts of the Great Southern tomorrow. Uh, that heat will gradually shift further east on Friday, so we may see some records uh, through the Goldfields area um, that day uh, until we see some cooler temperatures arrive over the weekend. And then are we expecting a little bit of um, rain, and I don't think it was very significant at all, no. sort of early into next week? What's the update with that situation? Well, um with that trough moving inland, I'll, I'll start off with what's happening tomorrow. Um, there is obviously going to be a bit of heat around. So when I said no, I meant really over the next couple of days. Today, we're not expecting any rain in the southwest. Tomorrow, with that trough sliding a little bit east, we do expect some high-based thunderstorm activity across the eastern parts of the central wheat belt and into the Great Southern, so east of about Meriden to Lake Grace. Um, so there is that risk of dry lightning through those areas, including the Aspirins region tomorrow. Um, and our fire dangers tomorrow will be high through those areas. So still a, f- a lot of heat around. Um, so rainfall-wise, it's going to be less than 0.5 millimetres, so very little uh, reaching the ground. Some areas might see 1 to 2 millimetres, but it's generally going to be on the drier side. Those uh, dry thunderstorms stick around uh, uh, east of Meridin and Lake Grace on Friday as well because the trough is uh, remains um, in, in that region on Friday as well. Uh, Those dry thunderstorms will extend into the gold fields as well. So again, generally less than a millimetre of rainfall. Um, now, on Saturday, we do see a weak cold front bash past the southwest coast. It's going to be very weak. I'm expecting maybe... A, about 0.5 of a millimeter of rainfall, uh, rainfall southwest of uh, about um, Lake Grace uh, to about York. It's not going to be much. However, the next cold front that's coming through on on Sunday, Monday, is going to be uh, a bit more substantial. So at this stage, we're looking at a moderate to strong cold front. On Sunday, as that cold front approaches, we might see less than one millimeter southwest of Southern Cross. So not a whole lot. But suddenly on Monday, as that cold front sweeps through the Southwest Land Division, we will see widespread rainfall right across the Southwest Land Division. The heavier falls will obviously be west of Katanning to about um, uh, Lenslin, Durian Bay. Uh, but further east, we will see maybe up to a millimeter. Yeah, it's not much to talk about, certainly. Yes. Uh, let's take a look into northern and eastern parts. What can you see, Ange? Well, it's uh, it's uh, uh, rather hot across the north of the state as well. So we're seeing large areas of uh, the Kimberley, the Pilbrine, also the Gascoigne um, 
Today, where temperatures are above 40 degrees. In, in fact, we've seen Mardi um, um, uh, hit a, a September record already uh, in the Pilbara today. So those very hot temperatures, daytime temperatures, will continue over the next couple of days. As the new ridge builds across the south um, this weekend and early next week, we'll see a gradual contraction of those very hot temperatures uh, into the Kimberley, um, but we will see much cooler temperatures as that ridge builds uh, following that uh, moderate to strong cold front on Monday. So there are better temperatures on the way. Unfortunately, it's not going to happen until early next week across the north. Very dry conditions continuing in the north. We might see one or two very light showers on the north coast of the Kimberley, but apart from that, I'm not expecting much rain. That cold front that does come through on Monday might produce a little bit of rainfall over the southern Gascoigne, so the southern part of the um, uh, sort of the Midwest, including much of the Central West, all the way up to about Shark Bay. Uh, but again, it's going to be about a millimetre. And what was the uh, temperature at Marty, the record? So at Marty... Um, it's uh, 41.7 uh, today. Uh, it's still heating up. Um, the previous record was 41 on the 27th of September 1980. Wow. Okay. And the warnings this afternoon? So currently there are no warnings. Um, we're, uh, we're not expecting any warnings for the next couple of days. Thank so that's you. the good news, I guess. That is good news. Very hot day. <laughs> we'll hang on to that, Ange. Thank you so much for that. It is a 23 to 1 here on the Country Hour. You can let me know how hot it is at your place. Any records broken at your place, text through. Let me know. 0448 922 uh, Certainly no rainfall records recently. In the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, no rain right across Western Australia. 22 to 1. Well, only two weeks to go until picking starts at the biggest mango orchard in the Kimberley's Ord Valley. Unfortunately, owner Steve Angel says there isn't much fruit around this year, and he's really not sure why. It's very random. Some trees might have two or three trays per tree, and then you might walk down a row and not find another tree with fruit on it for eight or nine trees. And it's just very random and it's hard to hard to estimate a crop value, but it is going to be a very poor crop. Can we just put that in context? Last year you had a very good season, growing season. Mm. How many trays per tree were you looking at there? Uh, look, last year we were looking at two and a half, three trays per tree of an overall average, yeah. which wasn't too bad. A good growing season, you say 40, 45 kgs per tree which works out six or seven trays per tree but it hasn't been achievable for a couple of years because of the climatic conditions. Can you talk me through the factors that have led to it being so hit and miss here this season? Look I think you could talk to 10 different experts and get 11 different answers. It was just more so we didn't have the continuation cold weather for pollen for flowering and pollination. And we had such a variant in temperatures from cool to warm to cool. And it's one of the major contributing factors. Is there any difference between varieties, between KPs and R2E2s or anything like that? Yeah, look, the R2E2s are a little bit more consistent each year. And the KPs tend to to have a year off every second year. And the older the trees get, it seems to happen a little bit like that. As we go for a drive around here, you're saying that the trees themselves look healthy. Is that right? Oh, yeah, look, they've had a good base fertiliser and 
they haven't got fruit on them, so all that fertiliser is going into tree growth and you know, new growth. And no one knows why the trees are behaving like this. And I speak with five or six different agronomists and they are not game to put up their hand and say why either, and neither am I. Can we talk about the recent news that is the chemical dimethylate has been banned as a post-harvest dip treatment? which will have obviously a big impact in the eastern states and their ability to send fruit over here. What does it mean for you as a WA grower? Well, we're very fortunate because we are fruit fly free and that's mainly the control of the dimethate. And the, the eastern growers can't send fruit into Western Australia. I'm sure the protocols will change next year. I'm not sure they will, but people will find a way around it, no doubting. But for at the moment, it's a bonus for... Western Australian growers, and especially for the likes of um, the chain stores who drag a lot of fruit out of the north of Darwin and Catherine, and that fruit can't come across this year. Or well, it can come across, but the, the protocols, I think, make it a little bit too expensive. And you grow or have recently finished a contract growing fruit over in Catherine. Can you tell me what's the fruit in the NT looking like that you've seen and heard about? Well, look, it's very limited, and... Um, yeah, look, there's some orchards that don't have any fruit. There's a couple of orchards that do have marginal fruit. I think there's one or two that have good fruit. And, yeah, look, it's just the same as here, very hit and miss, and a lot of disappointed growers, and Catherine is very much the same. You've just got off the phone with your agent based in Sydney. What are you hearing about the Eastern States market? The Eastern State markets, according to them this morning, was the exorbitant prices is you hear of 60 and $70 are only very, very um, ad-lib. And the base price he quoted this morning was around the $50 for premium fruit and maybe 30 to 32 for the second-grade fruit. And have you got a, a price for the WA markets that you can compare that to? Not at the moment, no, because there's virtually limited fruit come off in WA to go down to the market. And it'll be market-driven. It's what they're prepared to pay for it. If we're looking at a very limited number of growers in the eastern states who'll be willing to send their fruit over into the WA market this year, and you're expecting to have a bit of, I guess, freedom within your own market, what are you expecting those prices to be in WA? Oh, look, it's, I'd say somewhere in the vicinity of what the eastern state market is. It's supply and demand. There's no oversupply here, so demand might win. But in saying that, if you get it too expensive, there'll be consumer resistance in the supermarkets and such forth. It's a bit like lamb prices when they went to 200 and something dollars a lamb, the consumer resistance. And people are doing it a little bit tough at the moment. And mangoes are not an essential item. They're not a luxury item, but they're a nice item. Um, but can a household turn around and pay 5 and $6 for one mango? Yeah, and you have to be realistic. Do you think that those potentially good prices will allow you to break even? Oh, look, I'd be very happy to break even. You just, it's, it's a bit of a mystery and, yeah, it's a continual worry, but there's nothing you can do about it, so you just get on with it. Steve Angel from Swag Mangoes on the outskirts of Kununurra speaking to Alice Marshall in the lead-up to picking, which starts in a couple of weeks. 17 to 1. Mango prices at your local supermarket here in WA will be determined by how many NT growers decide to send their fruit over here. 
Robert Hall is from Seaway Logistics, which is involved in exporting mangoes around the world via an export hub near the Darwin Airport. It has a vapour heat treatment plant, but Robert Hall doesn't think NT growers will use it to send mangoes into WA, despite the recent ban on the use of the pesticide dimethoate as a post-harvest treatment. VHT is an option to go into WA and we've been working very closely with a lot of growers and, uh, in regards to that. But another protocol is to, to send it down to WA and then it gets treated with methyl bromide in, in Perth. Right. And from a commercial point of view, that's, that's a lot more accessible in regards to the cost per um, kilo tray or, or pallet compared to what we can do through our vapour heat treatment plant. Vapor heat treatment plant obviously is a chemical free option, so we'd love to see Woolworths and Coles and, and our, the larger receivers um, take that on board. But at the, at the moment and since the ban, um, yeah, uh, stock's been going into Perth and been uh, done as endpoint fumigation with methyl bromide. Robert Hall is from Seaway Logistics in the Northern Territory speaking to Matt Brand. Quarter to one. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Well, it's now inevitable the destructive Varroa mite will spread across Australia, taking out European and native bee populations. The only unknown is how long that's going to take. That's the warning from Maggie Watson, a senior lecturer in ornithology at Charles Sturt University, who specialises in parasites and pests just like the varroa mite. Dr Watson thinks Australia's beekeeping industry should look into importing specially bred varroa-resistant bees from the United States. It is an almost impossible conundrum to try and control varroa once it's out in the system, um, especially when you start considering uh, that they will infect feral bees and then we have no control over feral bees. So you think it will spread from out from New South Wales? They're talking about trying to keep it contained in New South Wales. You think that's unlikely? Uh, very much so, yes. So that's because it will or has already got into the feral bee population? Correct. Um, I believe in uh, late 2022, they were going to try and um, eradicate all the feral bees around that Newcastle um, uh, initial um, outbreak. Uh, but as far as I know, that was a failure. So you think it would be, it's in uh, Sydney now, do you think it just every day it would be spreading the mite now? Uh, yes, now given the seasons and um, the, the flowering that's going on, and I'm sure that bees are um, hitching rides uh, and, and spreading into areas that we don't even know of yet. Now, what about the implications for pollination? We've heard that uh, the price for pollinating crops uh, for farmers will probably go, you know, skyrocket now. Um, so it's a bit of a complex picture there. So we know that in order for some of our, our big crops like um, almonds, um, you need to have a lot of bees to, to cover that sort of distance, and so that's why we bring in the hive. What hasn't really been quantified is how much the feral bee population uh, is contributing to that factor. And so now that we're going to let essentially uh, Varroa go, that means that the feral bee population is going to crash. In New Zealand, that took about four years for it to crash about 90% uh, 
um, of the pre-rural levels. So we've got a few years yet uh, where we'll, we'll still have basically the same coverage, and then it's going to drop off a cliff. And at that point, we need to start relying on the native pollinators um, more even than the, um, uh, the honeybees because they're the only hope left. So the feral will be gone. There'll be less of the commercial beekeepers and we'll have to look to other sources, maybe also pollination from flies and things like that. Yes, definitely. Um, the hover flies and, and they're like um, very, very uh, successful pollinators um, and possibly even at this point uh, pre-Varroa are uh, just as important um, as, our, as our honeybees. So the other thing that we also have to consider is, uh, like in the U.S. Um, and New Zealand, they're breeding varroa-resistant strains of honeybee, uh, and they don't have any fancy genetics or anything. All they are is just extra clean, so they, they, they groom themselves more than um, normal honeybees, and so we need to consider uh, the economics of bringing those bloodlines in to make our honeybees more... More, more clean. And what does it mean for commercial beekeepers that you, they're going to be struggling for a number of years? Definitely. They're going to need help. They're going to need help or they're, they're going to need to um, really get on the bandwagon um, as far as importing new bloodlines. Maggie Watson from Charles Sturt University talking to Michael Condon. Dr Watson is a senior lecturer in ornithology with the School of Agricultural, Environmental and Veterinary Sciences her major interests include the effects of parasites on various animals and the environment. 11 minutes to one. Now, if you regularly tune into the Country Hour, you would have heard of asparagopsis and its potential for reducing methane emissions in livestock. But the seaweed derivative isn't the only thing being considered to help livestock industries achieve carbon reduction targets. A feed additive called Bovair has been in development for the last decade and is about to become commercially available. As Lara Webster found out, Australian trials done through Meat and Livestock Australia show Bovair can reduce methane emissions by as much as 99%. Results overseas are said to have shown a quarter teaspoon per cow per day, on average, reduces methane emissions from dairy cattle by 30% and up to 45% for beef cattle. For the first time, the additive has been trialled in feedlots here in Australia. University of New England Associate Professor of Livestock Production, Fran Cowley, says the numbers have far exceeded those figures. It's actually the greatest suppression of methane that had been observed anywhere in the world with this product before. So um, overall, in the finisher diet, we were getting 90% inhibition of methane um, by including just a couple of teaspoons of Bovair 10 in the, in the ration each day. Um, and that went up to 99% at times. So a, a really outstanding result and has is a massive step towards producing carbon-neutral beef. Um, there was a fairly consistent effect of um, inhibition. There was a slight indication right towards the very end that there could have been a, a somewhat of a tick up in terms of methane at the end. So I think that's a question that we still have to answer, whether there might be any adaptation to overcome the inhibitory effects of bovair in long-fed animals such as Wagyu. 
But there has also been lots of research done overseas in in dairy cows and fairly long-term feeding, which has been able to... Which um, says that in certainly many scenarios, able to get a a fairly persistent effect in terms of methane inhibition. Swiss-based chemist Mike Kinderman is the man who invented Bovair and has led its research and development. The feed additive Bovair is um, a small molecule that inhibits this transformation, the last step of of methane formation. It's produced out of two ingredients, um, two natural ingredients. One is um, uh, the bio-based alcohol, and the other one is uh, nitrate or nitric acid. Once it's produced, it's a liquid. We transform it into a powder. This powder is then conveniently being used as as a feed additive. You can mix it in the feed. And the mode of action is... While it's doing its job, it's broken down in its two natural fragments again that are present in the cow anyway. So as of today, we have finished over 65 feeding trials in 18 countries. One thing is that we did all these uh, feeding trials, all the research in, in strong collaboration with the academic partners and uh, also with the industry, with beef cattle and, and dairy industry. All our results are published in peer-reviewed scientific journals. So everything we did along this way is publicly available to policymakers, politicians, to the industry, to the research community, to the public. So there is is nothing hidden. The research has been funded by Meat and Livestock Australia, which has recently conceded achieving zero net emissions for the sector by 2030 is an ambitious target requiring significant investment. Lara Webster with that report on a new feed additive being trialled which can significantly reduce methane emissions in livestock. Six minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Shortly it's off to Katanning for the results of today's sheep and lamb market. First though, the average price of mutton at the Katanning sale yards last week was one of the worst in the country. And this week, the stock agents were pretty much expecting the same result. Last week, the average mutton price at Katanning was sitting at just under a dollar a kilo, while at the Mouche market, the average was a dollar thirty-three a kilogram. Wayne Peake is the commercial sheep manager for Elders WA. He says the price difference comes from the size of the animals presented at the sale yards. A lot of the sheep coming into the yards in Katanning compared to Mouche, obviously a little bit lighter in condition and that's um, been reflective in the price over the last few weeks. The market in Mouche today was um, quite firm, so we're hoping that will continue on through to Katanning um, tomorrow as well. Yeah, and I mean, looking back last week, the average price for mutton at Katanning was some of the worst in the country. We're talking like averaging like a dollar a kilo, if not less. What, what was the story there? Well, the hard part is at this time of the year is obviously A, numbers and attracting the, the processes down to the yards with these smaller yardings, but also keeping in mind right now the um, clean-up through the wheat belt, northern and eastern wheat belt. The processes really are looking for that sort of 20 to 28 kilo heavier type mutton to average that 24 or 5 kilos. And um, at present, with the seasons where we're at through that um, southern end, that's just not the type of sheep that are coming through into the system as yet. As the feed is starting to harden up now, we'll actually see the, the quality of the stock coming through should improve from here through to the end of October. Do you think we can expect similar prices at the sale yards this week? 
I'm expecting at this stage that we're still going to follow on as of last week. There's only limited numbers of each each age group coming in, whether it be mutton, and it's probably a little bit early for the new seasons lambs in any way, shape or form to come in in big numbers at this stage through that southern period. All indications are that, that the lambs possibly are two to three weeks at least behind where they normally would be this this time of the year with weights. So really all we're seeing is probably some of those earlier older ewes or earlier lambing ewes sort of coming into the yards, probably in very, very forward to soil condition. And that's what's sort of causing that market to, to be a lot lower at present. Why are the weights behind? The feed is not as strong as yet. I mean, the feed in the, in the southern areas compared to the to the north and the east, you know, their, their season cut off a lot earlier, so the feed's a lot stronger and the sheep obviously are bigger anyway. So through that southern area, traditionally, we're probably coming into the best 30 or 40 days of feed now. So we will we'll slowly see the, the improve in the fat score in the sheep. But, but where the processes have their um, grid set, it's, um, it's really those heavier types that they're chasing at the stage. Yeah, so looking back to last week, Mushay... Michelle's average per kilo of mutton was looking at about what one dollar thirty three. That yes. is significantly higher than the Catanning average. Why was that? But then again, you have a look at the grids and the way the processors have set up their grids. So ideally, twenty to twenty eight kilos is the ideal grid that they're trying to hit with a score two to four mutton. So that's where the high price is. The sheep coming into Catanning um, obviously don't fit in those grids; they fall outside of that. So. A, the, the, the price is virtually the same as what the grids grids are set at. It's just that the sheep aren't as, in as good a condition. I mean, obviously, it's really tough at this stage. We're right in the middle of our ram selling season. The results so far have been very encouraging. We've just got to try and get our stock in the condition that the processes are changing, are chasing, sorry, to fit into those windows. And you will get rewarded with the better price when that comes along. But right now, why there's not a lot of grazing support through the yards People still have a lot of stock on, on hand, on farm. They haven't been able to move and get through the processes. So until that happens, we won't get any support, you know, or major support from the graziers that we traditionally get from those southern areas until they can move some stock off farm. Wayne Peake, he's a commercial sheep manager for Elders WA, and he was speaking to Sophie Johnson. A couple of minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Let's get to the Catanning market now, where it was a slightly bigger yarding of sheep at the sale yard this morning. So I'm thinking that the prices probably dropped again. Tracy Kilner, can you run through the details? Hi, Belinda. 4,464 sheep. That's up 466 from last week. The quality was um, down and the prices were down again. New season lamb offered was lighter in weights with buyers very selective. Mutton eased again with the heavyweight merino ewes carrying a fleece selling to $42 a head. The lightweight new season lamb sold from $15 to $30, trade weights returned $40 to $57 and no heavy new season lambs were offered. Lightweight old season lamb sold to $20, trade weight old season made from $30 to $50 and the old season heavy lamb sold to $83 a head. Store ewes made from $4 to $20, medium weight sold from $10 to $35 and heavy weights over 30 kilos carcass weight returned $20 to $42 a head. Ram lamb sold from 2 to $20, while mature rams returned the same. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for going through those details at Catanning today. Uh, just repeating, today's yarding, 4,464 sheep and lambs being sold at Catanning
today. Good to catch up with you today. Just repeating the main story today that cattle stations across the Gascoigne here in WA are experiencing some very dry conditions this year. Listen again if you like on the podcast or the website. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.